episode 31. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Ashish Atreja from the Sinai App Labs. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In speaking with Dr. Ashish Atreja from the Sinai App Labs, I had an epiphany. One of the things that Dr. Atreja is talking about is how technology can be used to treat to target various chronic conditions in which we currently do not treat to target. And what I mean by that, or what he means by that, is that certain conditions like diabetes, there's a number. We're shooting for a certain A1C for blood pressure. There is a certain blood pressure range which we need to stay within. Certain diseases, it's very clear a patient can easily evaluate or a provider can easily evaluate how well a patient is doing. And by doing so, we're kind of making the patient accountable or we're making sure that the patient understands that there is a better place that they could strive to get their health to. Other conditions like, for example, irritable bowel disease, IBD, or rheumatoid arthritis, we don't treat to target. And because of that, because there's no target that the patient is aware of, oftentimes the patient might begin to believe that wherever they are is the best outcome that they can expect. I hope you get as much out of this conversation with Dr. Atreja as I did. I'm very excited to speak with you today. Could you trace the trajectory that led you to your current role as the director of Sinai App Labs. Thanks, Tracy. I was not a techie when I was growing up, but I could see the value of technology. And I think for me, the main moment was when I got exposed to working in databases when I was doing my master's in public health in Chicago. I landed up in a job just for the summer as outcomes coordinator for Women's Health Initiative, which was one of the largest of its kind studies on women's health. As outcomes coordinator, I had to maintain the databases for Chicago area. And I could see myself actually doing a fair bit of work in technology and enjoying it, even when I was not seeing patients. So I had in the back of my mind that I can always do technology as my alternative career. When I started with Cleveland Clinic during my residency, one of my first patients were lung transplant and I had to open a reference textbook, which was online. And as soon as I saw a reference textbook, which was online, I could see that that was actually a database which was powering that. I could see that we are leveraging technology so less in healthcare in 99, 2000. And I really thought if we do it, we can be so much more efficient. So after my residency, I did informatics fellowship at Cleveland Clinic in 2003, 2004 and Oregon Health Sciences University. I uh, landed up in a job to lead the electronic medical record implementation in Epic. And that finally led to the job at Sinai, where I'm now directing the Sinai App Lab, which is a full mobile development shop in an academic medical center. Is this common? I, I think I've I've never really heard of an app lab inside of a large health provider. It's fairly unique. I think we're only one or two or a handful of kind of uh, shops like this within a hospital. And I think 
part of it is we realize the need that we can't just rely on startup companies or early stage companies doing the work consistently. We have to develop a core and then we can use that core to kind of get the work done. So we got lucky with the grants, with the support from the leadership to establish this one-of-a-kind center. And, and was that was that really the vision behind why you created the App Lab to establish sort of um, a, a pivot point or a fulcrum f- from which to build off of a foundation, if you will? That's correct. You know, you do require a little bit of momentum and you require some core expertise because mobile development, especially in healthcare, even though it's moving very fast, it's not very easy to just to come up with a HIPAA compliant software, get it through the regulatory burden, and also make things which really improve patient outcomes. Really, we didn't want to do one-off solution like we just make one app and that's it. We really wanted to create an ecosystem where we build platforms where multiple apps can plug into each other and all of us can uh, lead to a much more highly efficient engine rather than a one-off initiative. So it was very well thought of, but we uh, we got lucky in the funding we got over the last two, three years and the support from the leadership we got to take it to the point where it is currently. In a way, it, it kind of reminds me almost, and maybe this is even analogous, of, for example, the Apple Health app, uh, which connects a number of different standalone apps so that the data can be integrated. Is that kind of what you're doing within your own uh, organization within Sinai? That's in, in a way, that's a good analogy. So the Apple Health Kit is more of a platform with APIs, with other things, they can connect to multiple devices. So it creates efficiencies. Instead of me trying to work with all those variable devices separately and uh, getting the data, I can then just engage with HealthKit and can integrate with all the devices. Similarly, we are creating platforms at App Lab. For example, we have a platform for health education called as Inform Health. So any new subject area can come for any specialty and we can get them ready for their own app within a week. It's a, it's a decent analogy to see. We're thinking more in terms of platform uh, and throughput uh, rather than just uh, one custom development of one app per se. How is this different from, you know, every large healthcare provider these days has an IT group that, you know, obviously messes around with the the key EHR systems and RFID and all that kind of thing. Are you kind of the the mobile adjacent to that or how are you related and different? So we have uh, at Mount Sinai Health System we just moved from medical center to health system. So we have now seven hospitals, one of the largest health systems in the country. We have around 800, 900 employees who are in IT. But we only have around 10 people in the app lab who are doing full-time mobile development. The reason is most of the hospital IT is about maintaining the current infrastructure, keeping the lights on as we speak. And are they are into implementation of electronic medical records. We don't have many IT departments. There are few, for example, um, Geisinger has one, Kaiser has one, but there are not many hospitals which have total teams dedicated completely to innovative apps or innovative solutions. It's more about maintaining what is currently there. And so what does your app lab look like, uh, you know, structurally? So structurally, we have 
it's me as a director, um, also the physician champion of the App Lab. I have one front-end programmer who does a lot of UI, UX stuff. And then I have a data scientist who works on analytics. And then we have a core um, programmer who does web services integration with the platform. We have we are getting an informatics fellow. We have two MDs who are trained, who are now as interns with us for a year as population health coordinators. And then we have a, a manager, and then we have an IT liaison as well. It's a team of around 10 people, and we work as a unit like a team where we get projects partly funded through our grants, and we do them. Or sometimes we are getting now projects more than what we can handle. So we have a co-development space where we engage with early stage and late stage companies, and we can sometimes share the work, what we have to do by through this code development effort. So we're creating an ecosystem of engaging with startup companies also because there's more work coming to us than we can handle with a small team uh, while we are trying to expand the team as well. Sounds like, I mean, 10 people is a, is a pretty optimal size for innovation. You know, you're, you're small enough that you can move with some agility, but large enough that you can have various disciplines working together. That's correct. We're also realizing, I think, it has to reach enough amount of size that we can really kind of offer quality products uh, at production level for various enterprises. So for example, we are going global this month with uh, our app being used in a registry for cardio- cardiovascular disease in 11 European countries. So that team, one person can test it, other person can develop it, the requirements come from some other, it keeps everyone efficient. That's a growing pain. Once we grow from 10 to 20 people, the, the administrative, the hurdle, and the, the bureaucracy may more come into play. So right now, we are at the fastest growth period. Yeah, so you're going to have exactly the same um, growing pains as probably any other startup out there that begins to scale in that way. We're trying to plan for it in advance, but you know, there's so much you can plan and so other things you just have to, when the time comes, you just do it that way. I'd definitely like to circle back around to a couple of the things that you said there, but this might be a good place to segue into, I understand you have a, a flagship app that, that your group is, is working on. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Our main flagship app is Health Promise, and Health Promise is completely HIPAA compliant disease and device agnostic platform to capture data from patients whether it is through devices or whether it is through patient reported data and bring the data through reporting and analytics and decision support back to physicians and linked with electronic medical record. We are testing it initially in IBD, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which happens to be an area of interest of mine as a gastroenterologist, uh, where we are providing this app to our patients. And through this app, uh, we keep track how they are doing on a week to week basis. And all this data then comes back to us, and we can now suddenly move from one-to-one patient care to providing population-based care. So all the 9,200 patients we have in our health system at Mount Sinai with IBD, we can follow them and can identify patients who are not doing good and bring them earlier on into our ecosystem or into our health system. That's our flagship app. What has happened is because it's disease agnostic, we have started getting a lot of requests to make it for other diseases. And because it's a platform, we can easily render itself into that. So we are customizing it now for migraine, a neuromuscular disease uh, for a Fortune 50 company. We also got, we did it for cardiology, which is going global. There are many disease groups. We already kind of started working on it. 
And that doesn't take away too much from our time per se, because we have built the engine uh, fast enough that we can scale to that level. We also created a, a health promise light or survey app, which means it's more like you can say kind of a survey monkey for patient reported outcomes. Any researcher can come online and they can create their own survey and the survey can then be delivered through an app or through a web-based browser, uh, all in a HIPAA compliant platform. So that's our main flagship app. And is this a really good example of, of how you've built the platform in the sense that you've got this app, which sort of sits as a hub. And then, as you said, some of the data is coming from wearables. So you're enabling those patient-facing apps to plug in and port data into the Health Promise platform? That is correct. And this platform is integrated with electronic medical record, Epic in our case. So we get the benefit of data which physicians have entered in the EMR. And then we have the benefit of data from patients and we have the analytics. So because there's so much amount of data, we just don't want to present entire data to physicians. We want to package the data into what we call as information nuggets. So the, so they when they see the data, they can act on it. Right. I mean, you know, I, I love the quote, data, unprocessed data is noise. Yep. So is this also an example of how you, you know, you had, you had said earlier that you work with certain startups. Would you be working with certain startups because they also provide, for example, patient-facing apps that you can figure out how to plug into the health promise platform or is it in some other capacity? That's correct. So, for example, one of the startups, um, our mid-stage company provides this integration platform for different apps and devices. So we leverage them. We're also working with other startups to bring telemedicine into our platform. So we can provide not only collect population level data from all the patients, but we can provide population-based care or group care. For example, patients who are depressed or something, we can actually provide the mindfulness through our telemedicine platform while being in the app itself. Um, and, and are you doing this in kind of... Um... I don't want to say open source because that might not be the the correct terminology, but are you providing an API and then whoever wants to can link onto it? Or are you in some fashion selecting startups that you're specifically going to work with? So right now it's at a stage where we are selecting based on our need. We are hoping at the end of this year to actually create this uh, platform where it becomes much more open for anyone to connect with. We haven't uh, gone that path as of now. Why don't we take it from the abstract a little bit closer down to the, you know, the, the concrete. So you're using a health promise right now in order to in the IBD space, as you as you just mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about if I'm a patient, why don't we take it from the patient perspective first? So I'm a patient. I wander into, you know, one of your hospitals and I am treated by a provider for IBD. What does my experience look like relative to Health Promise? So if a patient comes to us, we haven't gone live with some of the aspects of the app and we do a clinical trial. So not all patients will get the benefit of the app initially. But assuming we fast track ourselves one year later, clinical trial is out. We now, any patient that then walks into our health system we'll get an app for IBD, which bundles all the best practices and the best health education content we have into one. But it also gives a tracking tool to them. If they have a fitness device, it will also track that. They just have to enter a few questions, like 10 questions every two weeks. And we will create their entire portfolio or report card of how they are doing with IBD. 
this is then shared with your physician and whether the sensor or them, any one of them falls through the cracks, they're not doing that good. There's an early warning kind of a message that goes to the physicians. But if the physicians overlook that message, we have the population health coordinator, which will then follow up with the patients. Our goal is that ultimately we are able to track each and every patient with IBD that comes to get care at Mount Sinai Health System. Now, patients don't have to go on the web to find, learn about IBD. They will have the whole packaged education content within the app. So they know this is all the content they're getting in the app is actually filtered and curated by their doctors. We're also through a startup bringing the community aspect to it where we are creating kind of a Facebook-like community so patients can connect with each other and can discuss things of interest to them. At the same time, we can do monthly or weekly webinars and educate them on topics which are of interest to that. So not only it's their app where they can learn about IBD, they can track their disease, uh, interact with their physician, but it also through Health Promise community enter into dialogue with other patients who have similar disease and learn from each other. That's really interesting. The app has three pieces. One is the tracking component, which filters into a a dashboard, which is available to providers uh, on your side. The other is curated education. And then the third piece is is community. So it's kind of a three-prong approach. That's correct. If we take a look at the, the data that's being collected, how does that data improve patient outcomes? And, and I think that's where rubber meets the road because we can collect all the data that we want, but if that doesn't translate into improvement in outcomes, then we haven't done our complete job. So our goal is to provide the right kind of data at the right time to the right person so they can take the right action. To do that, all those right things have to happen at the, you know, at the right time. We first developed a, did a lot of focus groups to find what is the right kind of data that we need to collect from patients, which does not take too much time for them to fill but it's very meaningful for physicians to take an action on. So we identified those questions. Then we worked with the physicians that how do we display the data? When the data comes to that, they can act on it. And then we talked about how, when we display data and what actions they can take are embedded right there. Basically, our goal was to make it so easy for physicians. As soon as they see the data, they can take an action right there. Our hope is as we combine all those things together in this platform, we will see improvement in outcomes because we will be able to identify patients who just start to get worse, who are not really very, very bad as of now. And we can pick them earlier on and we can make the physicians get to know about it. They make the changes in the medications and and that leads to the patient improvement getting done earlier rather than later on. By acting early, by identifying and tracking these patients rather than waiting for the patient to come after three months, when the appointment is open, uh, and by the time they may probably need a surgery, we hope we can avoid surgery. We can lead to much better quality of life by tracking these patients on a regular basis. One of the things that you said that um, I have a question about is when you were talking about how the app helps the provider understand exactly what actions need to be taken based on the data. Are you have you kind of come up with algorithms that process the information and then provide the provider with best practice, what the best practice next step might be? That's correct. 
And I think that work is also in evolution. Even though we have the the basic best practices there, we are hoping to partner with American Gastroenterology Association to take all the guidance what our national society has and do embed them even more formally. So we call it different stages of decision support. And I think right now we have our stage one decision support because we want, didn't want to overburden physicians necessarily and do not want them to feel that we are prescribing them too much. So we went with the, just an initial kind of a decision support, said no, what is there? Based on the feedback, we have the pipeline to actually go to stage two decision support where it will actually go kind of micromanage, but we don't want to call it micromanage, where very specific information will be given at the right time. And this is integrated in with the EHR. So it's not like they've got to type in the information or, you know, use some index or something to figure out what the next step is. That's correct. So in the version two, for example, it will take the information from the, the it'll take the medication information from EMR. It will look at the symptoms and the symptoms are not doing good for a period of time. It will actually tell these are the next two kind of medications that you can prescribe. Wow. It's really interesting because I was reading there's a, a gentleman named Wes Chapman, and I was reading his blog recently. He's a, an oncologist, and he described decision support integrated with EHR, an EHR system, as a unicorn everyone is looking for, but no one can find. So you're making unicorns, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you know, the proprietary EHRs and the decision support are so restrictive. That's why we have this whole decision support arm, which is in the cloud. And we're hoping it will eventually lead to improvement in outcomes. And then we'll say, okay, this is Unicorn. The other thing I think is really interesting and which may be facilitated in large part by the fact that you're an app developer that is working within a large provider organization is the, the way that you have been able to alter your organizational structure to be congruent with the technology that you're developing. In other words, when you were talking earlier about making sure that you had a population health manager who was looking over the dashboard if the physician didn't have the opportunity to do, do you feel that because your technology development is happening within the you know construct of your organizational structure that you're able to gain the most utility out of the, the technology or not have things fall through the cracks? Tethi, I think that's the secret, if I have to say, for our app lab. We are embedded within the medical facility, actually within the medical office. So we are actually running pilot every day. Every experience that we have, with the, we have the patient community very much, we're engaged with them. So we don't run into typical problems with startups do, where once they have the product, they have to think of how to engage with the health system. We are actually evolving our product every single day based on the interaction we have with our patients or with the community or with the researchers we have. And I think there's something to be said, even though we have all these virtual tools, web conferences and ways, I think there's still something to be said about the physical space where you have the healthcare being delivered and a kind of a technology company sitting right there, learning from it at the same time. And you you hit it, you know, very much right. I think it has given us agility. It has given us new versions and ideas which would have taken months for other companies. You know what this really reminds me of? I was reading an article in Wired or, or something lately about how 
organizations like Google and Yahoo are pulling back all their remote workers, pulling them back in-house, because actually what they've discovered is that by working together in an office, the office environment itself breeds creativity. Mm-hmm. And it also breeds agility, that, that the proximity of individuals to one another actually makes for faster and more aligned in, uh, innovation. I, at least in my experience, my team is small. I could say that uh, one day, one of our people are off or I'm off location. I cannot just communicate enough on phone, even on a web conference with a webcom on. There's also this excitement part and enthusiasm part, right? I frequently have my programmers shadow me when I go for hospital rounds. So they can see the apps they have built, how that is leading to improvement in outcomes. Right. And what more bigger gratification is for a programmer when they can see, oh, my God, a patient is using it in a day to day setting. And this is how they're using it. Even before they made app, just to learn how healthcare is being delivered and where are our pain points gives them ideas on what can be improved. I, I think there is a value in when in collaborating outside people using web conference and other things, but inner core probably has to be in a physical location to create the maximum value, I think. Just to kind of segue into a little bit of a different topic, one of the things that we had spoken about earlier was this idea of using technology to to treat to target, which I found fascinating. Do you, do you want to talk about what your, your aim was there? Absolutely. So when we did focus groups with the patients uh, and showed them the initial mock-ups of the apps, one of the things that became so certain before that was what is the aim, right? So we barely talk to the patients, except when it's very well defined, like hypertension. We know the aim is to get lower than this number. But for most of the chronic diseases, we don't have a number or we don't have a very specific metric to tell them. So we took it upon ourselves using UI and other stuff to, to have a specific goal in the app itself, which we call a street to target, which means as soon as the patient starts entering the data, we already had defined what their target should be. And when they share the data with the physician, we all are on the same page, how far or how close the patient is to achieving the target and making it completely transparent because we feel the biggest reason we're going to achieve that target is when we share that with the patient so patient knows it as well. I'll give you a typical example. One of our uh, recommended best practices to give an immunization of influenza to the patients who are immunosuppressed. If we don't share that with the patient and don't let the patient know about it, they may not get the flu vaccine because their opportunity to get the flu vaccine may be with their primary care doctor and not with a gastroenterologist. It may be the CVS, which is next door to them and not the healthcare doctor, which we are. So there are multiple tangential ways where people can go on the right path if they know the target and the direction. And we have spent a lot of time in our apps to kind of create a clear path for the patient that they should not just be living with a diary all the time. They should know the goal is to have less than this much bowel movements a day. If they're not meeting that, then we have to do something about it. And I found that really fascinating. I had never really thought of the idea before that, you know, if I'm a diabetic, then I have, you know, an A1C number that I'm looking to hit. If I have blood pressure, there's a, a you know, BP range that I, that I need to be within. But for many other conditions, you know, IBD or migraines or you know, maybe rheumatoid arthritis, 
there aren't those numbers or, uh, you know, to, to your example, flu, flu shots, that, that patients really aren't given any sort of goal to strive toward. And, you know, something that you had said earlier really struck a chord with me. Basically, what that leads to is kind of learned helplessness within patient populations. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, you know, how that happens. Absolutely. And and I'll give you an example, which I still remember so discreetly when I was in Cleveland Clinic. I had this patient coming from Virginia first time and I asked her how she was doing. And she said, I'm doing OK, but someone told me to see you. I said, OK, so tell me what's going on. She never told what was wrong. Eventually, when I asked how many bowel movements you have, she said, I have 15 to 20 bowel movements in a day. I said, wow, how long have you been having that? For 20 years. And I said, OK, so does it bother you? Do you have accidents? She said, yes. So I said, maybe that's your number one issue. And maybe we need to fix that. And she says, yes, but I do have inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. So isn't it okay for patients to have 15 bowel moments when you have IBD? That's what I thought for most of my life. That's what I feel is learned helplessness. They are struggling to get better, but they don't know what to expect. So they feel it's part of being the disease is to have 15 bowel moments. It's the same thing as rheumatoid arthritis patient not able to do most of the recreational activities and thinking it's it's normal for them not to do a jog or not to walk long distances because that's what rheumatoid arthritis patients that what it does to them and and both of these are not true for majority of these patients you can actually give near normal or at least attempt to provide a near normal quality of life but till the patients themselves are not aware of that we cannot do that so a lot of our stuff in the app is actually giving them a target and telling them, this is your target. This is the quality of life we are hoping to achieve. And if it is much different than that, then we need to have a dialogue around this and kind of both physicians and patients need to agree on where we need to optimize ourselves as. I find that absolutely monumental, the idea that what you're doing is using technology in order to facilitate this idea of, of treating to target, which effectively makes, by giving the patient a target, what you're doing is, in, in a lot of ways, making them accountable to achieve that target. You're not letting them get away with, with something which is not in any shape uh, or form ideal. You know, you're giving them not only hope, but also the responsibility to, to to reach that goal. Would you agree? Right. Absolutely. The other thing that just sort of strikes me is I was having a conversation uh, recently with a guy who is a an expert in senior care. And he said one of the, the biggest issues relative to treating senior patients is that someone has told them, I mean, maybe in a physician that, ah, well, you know, what do you expect? You're old. <laughs> it, it sounds like kind of the same thing. Right, right. And, and we know with, with how the, we have people who run marathons first time when they're 50 years of age. We have, jokingly, me and my wife share a joke. We went to a fitness club and um, we signed up for a class and we could not do one-tenth of the work which many people who were like in 70s and 80s could do there. They were able to run through the entire class, aerobics class, and we were like tired. So this whole concept of what you can or cannot do when you are at whatever age we know those are all perceptions uh, and human being can do much more if they stay healthy. Yep. Well, it is very inspiring and exciting to, to think that 
vis-a-vis technology that that these goals can be that these targets can be set in a way that patients themselves can measure how well they're doing on their journey towards better outcomes. Right. From your unique perspective, what do you think the one critical success factor to improve patient outcomes might be while reducing costs? Mm. You know, if I have to pinpoint, it's it's patient engagement. Technology is a tool to engage with patients. We can engage with patients outside technology as well. But if we are able to engage patients and be a partner in their journey, whether that is providing health education, whether that is being available to them when they need us, or through technology, giving them tools that enables them to to track themselves and be where they want to be, then I think we've engaged with them. And without doing that, we cannot achieve improvement in outcomes. Interestingly, what we found in our focus groups as well, to really engage with patients, one of the key things we have to use in technology is to engage with providers as well. Because there's a relationship between a patient and providers that is still very sacrosanct. So so number one reason why patients told us in the focus group why they will keep on using our app was because the physicians are getting the data And if they act on the data, then that's the biggest motivator for the patients to keep on entering the data. So we are finding kind of, we want to get to the highest level of patient engagement at Sinai. One of the ways to do it is delivering them the app, which are patient-centric, but the other is also engaging their providers so they hear back from their providers how this app is helping them. I read there was a study recently that came out that was performed by one of the the EHR providers, and they asked patients or they asked providers how many of their patients had asked them whether the the EHR system that that provider was using could integrate the data coming off of wearable devices. And the study showed that very few patients were asking the question. And my takeaway to that was kind of exactly what what you're just saying, that a patient's probably not going to ask if they think that the provider isn't going to do anything with it, that the information is valueless. And I kind of looked at the study as being somewhat flawed. I think the, that the really the, the question should have been asked by the provider, because if the pr- question is asked by the provider, the patient would probably be all ears that the information that they're collecting is, is, is useful. Absolutely. I think uh, in some ways, the the way we have developed apps, which are just patient-facing or just tools like EMR, which are provider-facing, have actually broadened the gap. I think what we, we, we try to do is call, we try to do deep integrated apps, which actually have a patient-facing part, a physician-facing part, and a middle layer, which communicates to bridge that gap. And it's completely transparent. Whatever patients see, physicians see, whatever physicians see, patients see. So they have a common acknowledgement of the status currently and a common goal and how to make that through that path. Wise words, my friend. How can people learn more about the the Sinai App Lab? Um, where can they go if they're interested in learning more? Sure. I think the best would be just typing SinaiAppLab.org, S-I-N-A-I-A-P-P-L-A-B.org, and they will learn what we are doing. We're happy to partner with other um, companies, liaise with industry, or with other academic institutions. Through that, they can reach out to me uh, and my team. The more we learn, hear from people, the more we learn. 
what we can do. And it also gives us thoughts of what still needs to be done. And there's a lot of what needs, still needs to be done. Is there any particular types of technology that you are currently seeking at this time? We have got a telemedicine platform and and analytics platform. We're not, I think we have the foundation laid out. I think what we are now trying to do is mostly trying to prove every app that comes to us in a clinical trial that it improves outcomes. And uh, I think we have not, walk that path as of now we started doing it we just registered our trials and all so i think it's more about now putting evidence into the apps and technology uh, so we can then publish the results that yes you can use this kind of app or a platform in this setting to lead to this kind of outcomes that's our next goal and that's what we are going after right now I thank you so much for being on the the program today this has been really incredibly interesting it's absolutely my pleasure, Stacey. Thank you so much. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, the cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a, a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is is also in that same right-hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. We would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.